Well, it is certainly good to see Paul uh, this morning, and I do want to, I know he would say this, but I would say it for him, to thank you for praying for him, those of you who have remembered to, to do that. Please turn your Bibles to Second Peter. I think I can be pulled down a little bit. I sound at least loud to myself. Um, Second Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our sermon series in this short but very important letter of Second Peter. And our attention this morning will be directed to verses 1 through 9. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Please follow along as I read. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment? If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly? If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds, which he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for your word. We're grateful for the privilege we have to sit under it. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear as we ought and to apply your word to our lives as we ought. I pray for your help and for your grace to enable me to be faithful, to proclaim your word fully and clearly, and that your word will be the impetus by which you will bring change in our lives and build up this church for your glory. 
Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts now, collectively and individually, in ways that only you can. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, when wigs and weaves were growing in prominence, Alexian and I and Danielle, we were at a particular function, and there was a lady there whose hair was really eye-catching. It was difficult not to stare at her hair. It was full and it was somewhat long and it had this really attractive tint in it. And uh, she was doing the talk and I must say as I listened to her, I really couldn't help but keep looking at her hair and I was wondering in my mind, is that a weave or is that her natural hair? And so when we got home, a discussion ensued about this woman's hair and whether it was real or not. And Alexin and Danielle were convinced it was a wig and I wasn't really so sure that it was. And then I listened to the two of them talk about why they were sure it was a wig and I was even more confused by the reasons that they gave. And I saw this lady a few other times after that and I still couldn't figure out whether this was a weave or her real hair. And... I've kind of given up now. You just see them. I was at a funeral yesterday, saw many weaves and wigs, and they were all around and different hair, and I was behind, sitting next to my wife with a natural hair, and so I knew hers was not a, a weave, but um, you just can't tell. And I guess at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's real or not. It's hair. It's, it's real hair or false hair, but it's here nonetheless. But in this passage that we've just read, the Apostle Peter deals with something that is far more important than false here. He deals with false teachers. And it is unimportant whether we know here is false or not, but it is very important for us to know whether a teacher is true or not. In this section of the letter, Peter is assuring his hearers of some realities that they were going to face. He was saying to them, false teachers are going to arise among you, but God will judge them and God will rescue the righteous. Peter is saying to them, false teachers will arise, but God will judge them and rescue the righteous. Peter is assuring his hearers of three realities. Number one, the rise of false teachers. Number two, the judgment of the wicked. And number three, the rescue of the righteous. And in our remaining time this morning, I want to consider each of these. First of all, the rise of false teachers. Notice in verse 1 that verse 1 begins with the conjunction, but. And that clues us into the fact that Peter is connecting what he is now saying with what he just said. And what Peter had said, we considered this last week, in verses 20 and 21 of Second Peter, Peter is arguing for the authority of, and the validity of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture. And he's saying 
that the prophets who made the prophecies in the Old Testament, he says they didn't speak of themselves. They didn't speak from themselves. They spoke from God. They spoke as the Spirit carried them along, as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Peter says, but even though there were true prophets, there were false prophets among them as well. So even though you have these true prophets who gave us the Old Testament scriptures as breathed out by God, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter says in the midst of that, there were the false as well. And then he goes on to make the point, he's saying, and as there were false prophets among them, there will be false teachers among you. You're not exempt. You're not exempt. There will be false teachers among you in the same way that there were false prophets among the people of God. And notice what he says that they will do. Peter says in verse 1 that they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. This is the way of false teachers. False teachers, they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies. And Peter's point is, is that it will not be immediately obvious when false teachers are introducing false teaching, when they're bringing these heretical teachings. He, he says they do it secretly. It's not immediately obvious. But over time, their false teachings will grow and will become bolder as they gain the, the uh, confidence of, the, of those who they are misleading. It will become bolder. And Peter says they will even deny the master who bought them. That they will, they will actually get to the place where they will glaringly contradict the very word of God. Now, this statement that they will deny the master who brought them has been the basis of much debate, and there are some people who say that this statement is proof that a person who is saved can lose his or her salvation. And really, such a conclusion is not a valid conclusion from this text. It's not a valid conclusion because it is, it is saying about the text a point that Peter is not even attempting to make and would contradict what Peter said elsewhere. All Peter is simply doing is he is calling these false teachers, believers at face value based on a profession of faith that they would have made and based on their being in the church. And this is what we do. What we do in the church is we receive every person who makes a profession of faith in Christ. They're part of the community, but in time, our professions of faith are going to be proven to be true or proven to be false. And one of the ways it's proven to be false is when there is direct evidence in our lives that contradicts the profession of faith that we made in the past. And it's at that point that we recognize that person really was not a true believer. So these uh, false teachers, their denial of Christ is proof that they never belonged to Christ. And that's all Peter is saying. 
and we should read no more into what he's saying here. But Peter promises this. He says that they will experience swift destruction. And now, he's not saying that as soon as they start their false teaching, they're going to be destroyed. He's not saying that because if he's saying that, there's really no need to be worried because we know that as soon as they bring the false teaching, God is going to destroy them. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that the destruction that is coming to them, when it comes, it'll be swift. It'll be certain and swift. But the reason that Peter is warning them is that there's certainty that they're going to have time to spread these false teachings. And what Peter's going to do soon is he's going to say that God is going to judge. And the reason he has to say that God is going to judge is because it seems like for the length of time they're allowed to falsely teach that maybe they're not going to be judged. And Peter is assuring us, yes, they're going to be judged. But the false teaching is not immediately obvious. And these false teachers are not immediately judged in general. Now, certainly God is able to swiftly judge in one particular situation. What we're saying is, as a general rule, what we see is that God, in his own providence and sovereignty, gives them time, gives them space, gives them room to uh, promote and propagate this false teaching. Peter says, swift destruction is going to come upon them. In verse 2, we get to the heart of, of Peter's main concern, his concern for this letter as a whole. What Peter says is that many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, he says, that the way of the truth will be blasphemed. I want you to notice that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes and he says, many people will follow the sensuality of false teachers. Notice that, many, not few. We talked about this in, in a previous sermon, in, in, in this series. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, Jesus says, there are going to be many who will come to him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? Did we not? Did we not? And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. Never knew you. He says many. And we saw earlier in, in that same ending portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the way to destruction is wide and many go there and the way to eternal life is narrow and there are few that find it. Now again, John tells us in the Revelations that the number of people who will be saved is a number that cannot be numbered. A mind-boggling number of people John saw in heaven, he says, myriads upon myriads, and they cannot be numbered. But, relative to those who are lost, that number is few. And what Peter says, Peter says, many people are going to follow the sensuality of these false teachers. The New International Version instead of the word sensuality, uses the word shameful ways. And this, this word sensuality, in the original language, it, it, is, it is regularly translated to mean immorality, sexual immorality. It, it means making the grace of God as license, license to do whatever you want, to live however you want, and to feel that there is no 
uh, consequence as a result. And this is what attracts people to these false teachers. This idea that it doesn't matter how you live. What matters more is your heart. What matters more is your lips. What you say, not how you live. And uh, so Peter says, many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their sensuality. And notice that not even follow them. But be attracted to them because of this license that you get to do what ought not to be done. To live in a way that we ought not to live. Peter says many will follow them. And what's the result of that? He tells us the result. He says that because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. When they live these lifestyles that are contradicting the word of God and what believers are called to be and how they're called to live, it causes the way of the truth to be blasphemed. Many people ridicule and reject the truth. And I'm sure you've heard it. People will say, man, if that's being a Christian, I don't want to be a Christian. If I have to go to that church and be like those people, I'd rather not go to church. One of the places I tend to hear a lot of this talk is when I go to the barbershop. And some of you may have heard me say this before. I remember one time I was sitting in the barbershop and my barber plays games with the customers, sometimes who may not know that I'm a pastor, and he'll let them talk and lead them into all kinds of conversations. And then when it gets into a sticky area, he'll say, well, you know, he's a pastor, right? And then um, they would be a bit embarrassed or emboldened and they'll keep talking. On one occasion when a guy heard that I was a pastor, he said, man, so you was the pastor? I said, yeah. He said, um, he said, man, so when I was growing up, everybody around the blocks wanted to be a drug dealer. Say, so now everybody want to be a pastor, man. Because when, you, when, when you're a pastor, man, you, 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 you have access to a lot of money. You could live large. You could drive fancy cars. And, and he said, I, I mean, and think about that. What is that? That is the truth being blasphemed. That is the way of the truth being blasphemed. And here's why it's being blasphemed. When a minister of the gospel presents a picture to the world of a true minister of the gospel, nobody wants to volunteer. Nobody wants that for him or herself. But the picture of swimming in money and having people to serve you at your beck and call and to live like a prince or to live like a prime minister or live like a CEO of a big corporation, that's being flaunted. What happens? Many follow that. Many follow that because they desire for themselves. And what happens is the way of truth, the only way to lead to eternal life, people say, I'll have nothing to do with it. The way of the truth is blasphemed because of the immoral lifestyle of false teachers. And sadly, when that happens, is they, they broad rush even the faithful ones of the Lord. Always remember this. The principle that the Lord shared with Elijah when he said to him, I have 7,000. When, when Elijah wanted to die, he thought that there was no one else serving God but him. He said, God, I'm the only one that's left. And the Lord said to him, I have 7,000 others who have not bowed their knees to Baal. 
And the reason is not because there are 7,000 good people in and of themselves. The reason is because God preserves to himself a remnant. He preserves to himself the true and the genuine in the midst of the false. But not only are these false teachers marked by sexual immorality, Peter says they're also marked by greed. They're also marked by greed. And what is in view here is financial or material greed. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And see, greed can't be hid. Such greed cannot be hid. Greed for material things or for financial things, it cannot be hid. And so oftentimes one of the things you see with these false teachers is they're always talking about money, always trying to get money. And then they've seen their extravagant lifestyle. Sometimes it's not unusual to see them come and cry poor mouth and I need this and, and I need you to help me with this. And then you see them waste money on themselves and on people who are near to them. And Peter says, greed is the motivation of these false teachers. He says, they exploit you through lying. The word that Peter uses for false is the, is the word where we get plastic from. Peter says, they give you plastic words. It's, it's like going to this store, this leather store, Everything in the store, man, 50% cheaper than you can get up from the other store up, uptown. And so you go there and you buy your items from the leather store and you get home and find out it's pleather, not leather. It's plastic. And Peter says, so these, these, false, these false teachers, he says they will literally lie to you. They will fabricate things. They will... They will, in their greed, exploit you with false words. And you know one of the reasons that oftentimes they get away with it? Because people are sincere. And people are trusting. And people generally fear God and they think, you wouldn't get up there and tell a lie like that. Because you wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it because we fear God. And you say, well, they won't get up and do that. No, Peter says, no, they will lie to you. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And in our day, the way it happens is that they tell you, the Lord dropped this into my spirit. The Lord told me this. I had this dream last night. I had this vision last night. And oftentimes, it's just blatant lies. Now, it's not to say they're not true dreams and true visions. Is not to say that God does not speak to the hearts of, of people through prophecies. Not to say that at all. As a matter of fact, the counterfeit proves the real. The, the, to, to have a counterfeit, there must be a genuine that you have counterfeited it from. But these are, these are people who will literally tell lies in their greed to get what they want. And so their prophecies and their stories are oftentimes connected to getting you to give money. And what it is is witchcraft and manip manipulation. It's nothing short of that. 
And many people actually fall for this. And you know, sometimes I think, I say to myself, boy, if everyone in the world was like me, that person wouldn't even have a life or that business wouldn't exist or whatever. And so we wonder, how is it that these individuals are able to even have an audience? How is it that there are people who even follow them and listen to them in that particular way? Back in July 2014, Calvary Deliverance Church, a church on East Street, many of you know the church, was celebrating its 32nd anniversary as a church. One of the key speakers they brought in is a man by the name of Jamal Bryant. He pastors a church in Baltimore, Maryland. Jamal Bryant is a man who fathered five children with three different women and publicly acknowledged one of the children he fathered out of wedlock for the first time from the pulpit after the mother of the child took him to court for child support. Then the summer of 2007, rumors exploded in his church that he had gotten a 17-year-old girl pregnant who was a part of the church. The church leaders said to him, okay, you need to step down until we investigate it and await the paternity test results. And Brian's only response was, this is a private matter, and he refused to step down. He continued to pass through the church. And then after a five-and-a-half-year marriage, his wife divorced him on the grounds of adultery, which he acknowledged. You can go online. You can see the interview that he did with Roland Martin, and he shares that whole thing. Just two months after that, Two months after Calvary Deliverance Church had Jamal Bryant to speak at their anniversary service, he was the keynote speaker at Neil Ellis's Global United Fellowship Conference. And more recently, just in January, the Church of God denomination, the denomination I grew up in, invited Jamal Bryant to be one of the conference speakers that they put on. And since that time, even more things have come out about this man, more women, at least one woman in particular, accusing him of um, being the father of a child by DNA testing, which he voluntarily participated in. And when I saw that, and if you drive on the, on the East-West Highway, right at the corner of Robinson Road and, and, and the Mall at Marathon, there's a big sign there advertising this meeting that was held at the Church of God. It, I don't know why they don't take it down. It's been since January. It embarrasses me every time I pass by it. Why would leaders invite such a man to speak to God's people? They cannot plead, they cannot plead ignorance. As a matter of fact, if they plead ignorance, they should resign from their positions because it shows that they are reckless and careless and don't even do the slightest bit of investigation. What can he tell God's people? He has one thing going for him. He's a master orator. And he can raise a lot of money. 
And he can draw a crowd. And so he is brought and leashed on God's people. And so we have to ask the question, why, why does a sexually immoral man like Jamal Bryant have a church of 10,000 people who can read passages like we're reading and it doesn't occur to them, this man is a false teacher? Why is it that such a sexually immoral man is in such great demand that some pastors feel of all the individuals they could bring, that they must bring him to speak at their churches and their conferences? When he clearly does not fit the biblical qualifications to serve as an elder. And the simple reason is this. They are ignoring the warning against false teachers. Brothers and sisters, Peter made the decision. He said, this is so important. He said, I see death in front of me and I want to use the remainder of my waking days, my, my, the, the days that God has given to me. That I want to remind you of these things. I want to warn you of these things. And we are arrogant when we ignore it. We are arrogant when we say, it's okay. We don't need to have that warning. If you see one or more of these four marks on a leader who claims to speak for Christ, run from him. Peter gives them to us right here. The first, their teachings contradict the word of God. Their teachings contradict the word of God. What this means is we must know the word of God. This means that we must Read our Bibles and we must not be afraid to question things we hear that are not consistent with what we have seen in the Bible. Whether it is apparent or, or it's just actual outright contradiction. We need to say, hey, I, I don't see that in my Bible. How, how did you come up with that? First mark, their teachings contradict God's word. The second, they lead immoral lives. Don't ignore glaring immorality. Don't ignore persistent rumors about immorality. Now, I'm not saying that we latch onto every rumor that we hear, but if you hear a persistent rumor about an individual, without necessarily drawing a conclusion, it should cause your antenna to go up and to be more alert and more observant to see whether there's some truth to that particular rumor. And I would even add, and I would add this, in my case, if it is a rumor about me, you approach me. Ask me. I heard this. Somebody said this. Is this true? The third, they are financially greedy. Or materialistic. They teach and preach a prosperity, health, wealth, gospel, extravagant lifestyle. Listen, there's nothing wrong with an extravagant lifestyle if that's your money. But you don't do that living off offerings. You don't do that when people sacrifice to give and then you live like you run a corporation, a Fortune 500 corporation, driving around in jets and staying in five-star 
hotels. If you see, they're marked by financial greed and opulence and extravagance. Recognize that's one of the marks of a false teacher. And then this is the fourth one. They tell stories that can't be proven. See, this is one of the tricks of the trade. Because the easiest thing to do to mislead people is to stay away from the Bible. Because if you stay away from the Bible, then really you don't have an objective way to prove that unless it outrightly contradicts the Word of God. But when somebody comes and says, you know, I had this out-of-body experience, and I've heard some share this, and Jesus came to me, and Jesus spoke to me, and then we walked down by, and they go on and on with these stories. You really can't go and say, well, you know, that contradicts a particular passage. But beware of those who tell these stories that can be proven, some dream, some vision, some prophecy. And even these, these vague prophecies. I, mean, I, heard, I heard someone the other day, you know, talking about our elections. Our elections, or even the U.S. elections, for example, when you have two particular outcomes, I mean, largely in our elections, it was going to be the FM or the PLP. That's a 50-50 guess. I mean, if you say, well, the FM is going to win, and the FM wins, that don't make you a prophet. That don't make you a... Tr- because it's 50-50. But there are some people who will come and say, see, he, he predicted that right. But let's not be moved by that. These are marks of false teachers. They will lie to you to exploit you. I want to ask you this morning, how, how seriously do you take these marks that we are given in Scripture, these warnings about those who claim to be God's servants? Are you ignoring them or excusing them just for personal reasons? The way some people re- relate to false teachers remind me of how some people relate to pit bulls. I, you know, I, listen, I will not own a pit bull. If you own a pit bull, um, don't be offended by what I am going to say. If I had my way, I'd ban them all. I'd ban them all. But I, I watch people relating to pit bulls, and I'm thinking, you've read of these stories where pit bulls have attacked their owners, and somehow they're thinking, not going to happen to me. And I don't understand their thinking. I don't understand that thinking. And so some who cozy up to false teachers and watch them on TV and buy their books, what they're basically saying is, that pit bull isn't going to attack me. That's my pit bull. I, I understand that. If he says something that I don't like, that I know is wrong, I just don't listen to that. But he says some good things. And that's the way false teachers operate. Not every single thing the false teacher says is false. He's going to use some bait to get people to come. But we must take these warnings seriously. God warns us because we need to be warned. Now, though false teachers will arise, Peter tells us God's judgment will fall. This brings me to my second point, the judgment of the wicked. Notice what Peter says in the second sentence of verse 3. He says their condemnation 
from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Here Peter is reminding us of the sovereignty of God over the deeds of false teachers, that he has already determined their judgment. It is not idle, and it is not asleep. The implication is they will be allowed to continue giving the impression that their judgment is not idle or asleep. Or that their judgment is idle or asleep, sorry. Peter says, no, it's not idle, it's not asleep. And Peter then goes on to give us three examples of God's judgment. And the reason he does this is to give proof. What he's doing is he's making a case, he's saying, listen, don't listen to them saying that the Lord is not coming back. Because coupled with the Lord not coming back is them not being judged. He says he will come back. He will judge. God has judged and God will judge. And he gives three examples to show the serious judgments of God. And it's amazing to me how people would acknowledge these judgments that God brought. And they will say things like, a loving God wouldn't send you to hell. A loving God wouldn't do that. Peter gives us three notable examples of past judgments of God. The first is the judgment of the evil angels. The second is the judgment of the ancient world. And the third is the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now concerning these angels, it's quite interesting that Peter's point in this passage is to assure us that since God has judged the wicked, he will judge the wicked. But oftentimes, people can get distracted about what Peter says in verse 1 when he says, for if, sorry, in verse 4, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but were cast into hell and committed into chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. There's speculation about who these angels were. Some say that these were the angels in Genesis 6 that talks about the sons of men going with the, with the daughters of, the sons of God going with the daughters of, of men and, and having children. Some people say it was those angels. And then others say, no, it was the angels that fell from heaven who fell before Adam sinned and they, they rebelled against God and God expelled them out of, out of heaven. I'm not going to dwell on that this morning other than to say I believe that it is the latter. I believe it's referring to those angels who were expelled out of heaven, who rebelled against God. Peter doesn't elaborate. He doesn't tell us specifically. And the reason he doesn't tell us specifically is we don't need to know. But what we do need to know is that God didn't spare these angels. These were angels. God judged them. And Peter tells us that they were cast down and they were, they were cast to hell. And if you have a Bible like mine, the ESV, you would see a footnote to the word hell, a footnote 10, and then the footnote itself actually says that the Greek word is the word Tartarus. 
And Tartarus in Greek mythology is the place where the spirits of the, of the wicked went for punishment um, after, after death. And so clearly Peter is using what would have been popularly understood in, in that day. He doesn't use the typical word that is used to talk about the hell of judgment, which, which is Gehenna. He uses this word uh, Tartarus. And the point really is that the judgment isn't a final judgment. It's a judgment, but not a final judgment because it's, it's more like a holding judgment. It's kind of like how young men, when they get charged with crimes, or women as well, they put them on remand. They haven't been finally judged yet, but they are on remand awaiting that final trial. So these angels are kind of like on remand. They're restricted in some ways. That's the symbolic language that we see here of the, of the chains. Um, and, and you know it has to be symbolic because angels are spirits and you can't put a chain on a spirit. But it's, it's symbolic language to speak about restriction uh, concerning their activities and, and what they're allowed to do or, or not do. But again, those are sidebar issues. The main point that Peter is making is he is using this as the first example that God has judged to say that God will judge. He says he didn't spare angels. So we can also say he will not spare the false teachers. They will also be judged. The second example he gives is in verse 5. It talks about the ancient world, a reference to the flood recorded in Genesis 6 through 8. And here the judgment was universal and only eight persons were spared. In this account, we see Peter telling us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, something that we don't get from the actual account in Genesis 6 through 8. But remember, Peter's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and Peter is speaking truth, so we know that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so the implication is that for the 50 to 75 years or so that it was taken to build the ark, Noah was preaching to those around him. He was preaching and calling them to repentance. And we see in this God's long-suffering and we see God's mercy. On the one hand, God is preparing for judgment. On the other hand, God is holding out a message of repentance to those who will be judged if they don't repent. And then the third one, Peter references Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 6. And he tells us that God's judgment of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And what's going to happen to the ungodly? They're going to be judged. The same way Sodom and Gomorrah was judged, the ungodly will be judged. And just another sidebar, an important sidebar though. This is one of the scriptures that Seventh-day Adventists use to make a case for what they call annihilation. Seventh-day Adventists teach that hell is not eternal. That lost people will be annihilated or they'll be extinguished at some point. And the, the, the punishment is not eternal. Which doesn't make sense for any number of reasons, but one I will mention. In Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 25, verse, the, the very final verse in Matthew 25, it talks about the righteous 
going to eternal life and the wicked going to eternal punishment. The very same word that describes the life eternal is the same word that describes the punishment eternal. You cannot have eternal life that's truly eternal, same word, and then over here the punishment is not eternal. That's like saying yellow over there and saying it's yellow, and then when you get over here you say it's beige or something. It's the same thing. It's, it's eternal in both cases, or it's not eternal in either case. But my point, though, on this is that what the Adventists are doing in this particular point, it's, it's like um, misrepresenting the words of someone. It's like being in a conversation with someone talking about the weather, and someone goes and they take something that you said talking about the weather, and they go over here and they use it to, to make a case about war or something, something that's totally unrelated to what you are talking about. Peter is not making a point to say to the wicked, you're not going to be punished eternally. That's not the point Peter's making here. As a matter of fact, Peter's not even talking about the people in Sodom who were destroyed, who were judged and, and extinguished, or they were put into extinction. He's talking about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those cities were no more. They were just sulfurized, and nothing could grow there, and so nobody could live there, and the cities were just bare and, 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 and desolate. His point is not, you're going to be punished and then extinguished. His, his point is, God is going to judge. The same way he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, and obviously that wickedness had gone on for a long time, God's judgment is going to fall. That's the point that Peter makes. Brothers and sisters, God is no respecter of persons. He didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the ancient world. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. And therefore, God will not spare the wicked in the future judgment. Past judgment is proof of future judgment. And so we need to really consider whether we really believe that there is a day, there is a great reckoning day where God himself will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And he will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. And if we don't believe that, we are standing with the false teachers. We are standing with those in Peter's day who are saying, where is the sign of his coming? Where, he is not coming back. Things remain as they always have been. But if we ignore the very plain words that we are reading in Scripture, we ignore them to our peril. But not only does Peter tell us that false prophets will arise and that God's judgment will fall, so then finally he tells us God's people will be rescued. God's people will be rescued. So let's consider finally the rescue of God's people, and this will be brief. Peter tells us that God will preserve his people from the trials they face, and he will rescue them from his judgment. It's a wonderful promise that he makes. Understand that the people 
to whom Peter was writing, the, the, the true saints, the true believers who were under threat by these false prophets, Peter's assuring them, God knows how to preserve his people and rescue them from trials. Now again, this doesn't mean that we won't face trials. It doesn't mean that God is going to evacuate us out of every trial that comes our way. The two examples of Noah and Lot is proof of that. He didn't do that for them. Could you imagine what it would have been like for Noah to be the only righteous family at that time in the whole earth? Him and his, him and his seven-member family. Imagine the kind of pressure he must have lived under. The Bible says that the violence that existed at that time, the conduct of men that existed at that time, caused God to say, I'm going to destroy it all. God kept Noah and his family. Noah and his family didn't go the way of the rest of the world, not because they were good and better than the rest of people. God, the Bible says that Noah found grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found something he didn't deserve. He didn't, he, he didn't merit. If God dealt with Noah and his family based on what they merited, he'd have destroyed the whole earth. But he gave Noah and his family grace. They all deserved to die. Because none of them fully pleased the Lord. God rescued Noah and his family. And God also rescued Lot. Lot found Tremendous grace. Tremendous grace. In verse 7 it says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct. And we know that sensual conduct was homosexuality. Rampant, open homosexuality. Unbridled lust for the same sex. And says his, his heart was tormented as he saw and heard their lawlessness deeds. And God preserved him. God kept him. Again, not because Lot was righteous. I think if we look at Lot's life, we could see in many ways Lot was very selfish. Lot was short-sighted. The Bible says after he inconsiderately chose land more preferable over his, his uncle, he pitched his tent towards Sodom, showing a lack of discernment. He pitched his tent in that direction. But God was merciful to him. And God preserved him in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Peter's encouragement to the righteous in his day should be an encouragement to us as well. Some of us may be the only believer in our families. may live in a house with unbelievers. Some may be the only believer on a job. Or you may work in a very hostile environment where you, 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 like Lot, have your soul tormented by the things you hear and the things that you see. And, and there's, a, there's a vexation of soul that takes place. We have different circumstances. And some of us experience this more than, than others. And God's encouragement, God's promise to you is this. I know how to deliver the righteous out of trials. Again, not evacuation, but I know how to keep them. 
I know, I know their frame. I know what they can bear. I know what they can tolerate to the last degree. God knows. And so wherever we find ourselves, whatever setting we find ourselves, trust it as God's lot for us, that his boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for us, and God will preserve his own in the midst of the trials. One of the things that should encourage us to be aware of is, yes, we do have to seek to follow the Lord as best we can wherever he places us. But ultimately, we will overcome, not because of our own strength, we will overcome because of a God who knows how to rescue the righteous out of trials, ensuring that they will not overwhelm them, they will not overcome them. There's a very sober warning that Peter gives in verse 9. First, he gives the comfort to those who belong to the Lord when he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the Godly from trials, the other part of that is, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This is not like going to Central Police Station and you just, you know, disappear and can't find. No, he says, God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And then. We'll see next week that he, he actually says especially a particular group of people. Brothers and sisters, this is a wonderful promise. But let me say this as I close. In the end, if we would all be honest, as much as we seek to serve the Lord, as much as we walk in the way of righteousness and renounce the way of wickedness, Our standing before God will still not be perfect. Will not be perfect. And we should dread the thought that we have to finish this life and stand before a perfect, holy God who sees all and who knows all and be judged based on our own merits. That should frighten us all if we're honest with the reality that we're not perfect and that we fall short, that even when we desire many times to do what is right by God, we fall short. The thought of that should cause us to shudder. But the good news this morning is that's not the way we're going to stand before the judgment, those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ. What will preserve us on that day from being judged by God with the wicked is the righteousness of Christ. His merits are not ours because we have no merits. We are able to be rescued from the judgment of God because Jesus was not rescued. On the cross, the judgment of God fell on Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took our place. Jesus bore our sins. Jesus took our punishment. And that's the only reason those of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ 
on that final day will stand before God and not be judged because we have been judged in Jesus Christ. The judgment that we deserved was poured out upon him. The Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. And he does it through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us this morning that false prophets will arise, that your judgment will fall, and that the righteous will be rescued. Lord, help us to remember that we will be rescued not because of our own merits, but we will be rescued and not judged because Christ was judged for us. Lord, will you help us to remember these truths in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.